Good evening, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Strong Women's Strange Worlds podcast. My name is Dark, and tonight my guest is science fiction author Karen Huff, and she will be reading from her novel, Ground Control. But first, let's chat with Karen for a bit. Welcome, Karen, and thank you so much for joining me tonight on the Strong Women's Strange Worlds podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So before we get started with your reading, tell us a little bit about yourself and the genre you write. Sure. Um, Well, I guess it could be considered soft science fiction or speculative fiction. So I write stories about humans and their relationships, but not quite in today's world. So there's an element of the future or of, well, in this case, uh, space, or I'm writing another one about magic, but it's the normal people that are in situations probably in the near future. So your novel, Ground Control, which is what we'll be hearing a piece from tonight, that was, I don't want to necessarily use the word inspired, but you used elements from something in your real life to write the story? Yeah, um, I like to describe it as not completely autobiographical. It's the story of a woman who has, um, who's picked up and followed her husband and his job on a space shuttle to Mars. So um, obviously it's not inspired by real life, much of it, but I, when I wrote it, I had just recently moved to London, England with my husband following his job and leaving everything of mine behind. Job, family, friends, we brought the kids along. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a challenging time and I, I found it, I, I laughed at myself quite a bit because I was so miserable for the first six months. And I was like, well, it's, it's dumb because people like a hundred years ago, even less would pick up and like they'd go to a new continent or they'd move halfway across the country and they would literally never see anybody of their family, of their friends again. They'd never know what happened to them. So I was very self-pitying and thinking, well, like I could go on a Zoom call or I could write an email or I could take a plane back across the ocean, no problem. But the character in my book had to go on a one-way trip with no way back. And uh, so it ended up going to Mars. Nice. That is quite a one-way trip, isn't it? We don't have the technology yet to get there, but aside from that, we definitely don't have the technology to come back. So that's kind of the uh, the inspiration there. So go ahead and set up this piece that you're reading for us tonight. All right. So it's the um, it's the night after Sarah, the main character, has found out that they're moving to Mars. It's the night after she's told the kids. So she's getting them ready for bed. They're going through bath time and just a normal family night routine, except that they know that they're going to be getting onto a space shuttle soon and moving to Mars. It's kind of the family dynamic of of the the everyday mixed with the surreal, like, I can't believe we're doing this. What's it going to be like asking the asking and answering the questions that the kids would have in that kind of situation? Like, what's what's my new school going to be like? What's, what's going to be like in space? Will I be able to touch the stars? And kind of grounding that in a in a normal family discussion and trying to make it seem not that out of place at all. So let's give a listen and then we'll come back and we'll chat a bit more about your story. Ground Control by K.A. Huff. Chapter six. Bedtime. The routine was comforting in its sameness, wherever they were in the world or off of it. She cringed inwardly. Grant had left for San Antonio this morning, so she was flying solo with the kids for a few days as usual. Jack had bathed first, eager to test out a submarine he had built from Lego. Judging from the variety of noises emanating from the bathroom, and had depth control issues and sonar capabilities. 
Maggie sat in a wide straddle in the hallway, a book set out in front of her. Chest up, Sailor murmured as she passed by with Jack's robe. Maggie straightened her back and rested her elbows on the hall runner, her stomach almost touching as well. She repointed her toes and took an audible breath. Don't push too hard, sweet girl. You'll hurt yourself. Sailor hung the robe on the back of the door, then knelt down on the mat to wash Jack's hair. He clung to his submarine, his strong little body floating while she rinsed the soap off. Did you do a good scrub? Mummy? When he stared at her without his glasses, she felt like he could see through her, like those grey eyes could see the white subway tiles that lined the walls of the bathroom, or beyond, even through the row of ferns on the windowsill. It was unnerving. Jack, did you scrub yet? He blinked and focused his eyes. Uh, no. Mummy? Sarah sighed and picked up his washcloth. She put a dollop of body wash on it and lathered up his neck, giggling with him as she got to his armpits. What's up, buddy? What do you think it'll be like? In space, I mean. He was staring dreamily at the ceiling again already. The kids had taken the news extraordinarily well last night. What kid wouldn't? Space was, well, space. And it was cool, the coolest thing in the... I'm going to have to update all of my expressions, she thought. They had begged to their friends that morning at school and hadn't stopped strutting around the schoolyard since. I don't really know. This was truthful. She had been trying to imagine what their life would look like for the nine months of space travel, for the rest of their lives on an alien planet, and each time her brain had just shut down. Too big. She could imagine packing up her office, packing up their house, starting the rounds of goodbyes. Her eyes welled up with tears and she shook her head. We'll learn more about the spaceship next week, but do you remember the video tours we watched about the last Mars ship? They had devoured all the information they could find from the last two shuttles. Images, videos, anything they could find. The space shuttle looked, well, on the inside, it looked a lot like a cruise ship. You'll have your room, and Lego, and school to go to, and friends to play with, she recited as she washed his shins, carefully dabbing at some new playground scrapes. And Rupert! And Rupert. That means you get to help with his litter box. Yucky. He scrunched up his nose, distracted for a moment. And stars. What will the stars look like, up close? Okay, I'll clean. Well, we're not going to be close to the stars. We'll just be more among the stars. Up you get. Sarah pulled him up to his feet, and she used her forearm to push a lock of hair away from her face. She sighed as she rubbed him down with a navy blue towel. His hair stood straight up in spiky points. I really don't know, buddy. It's going to be something we discover at the same time, I think. Now brush your teeth, please. Miss Maggie, she called into the hallway. You have five minutes till your turn. Jack wriggled into his bathrobe, letting the damp towel pool around his feet. She scooped it up, then bent to pull the plug, and her hair fell into her face again. Good night, Jack Attack. He was snuggled under cool light blue sheets, his hair still tussled and damp on his pillow. Rupert sat at the foot of his bed licking his back leg and studiously ignoring them both. She bent to hug her little boy and was rewarded with his standard, almost too tight hug. Grrr, he growled softly. Oof, she said, returning his smile. She reached for his nightstand and turned his glasses over so that they weren't resting lens side down, then neatened a small stack of books that threatened to tip over. Jack's personality was showing in his room more each year. It housed a growing collection of books. He was a surprisingly avid reader, though he had just started getting into chapter books. She loved to watch him without him noticing, as his pale grey eyes scanned a page and fixed dreamily on the wall. Sarah had put up shelves and cubbies for his Lego, too. He was an advanced Lego builder, he said, and constantly rotated a display of his creations. 
His two good friends at school were like him in personality, if not in form. Tucker and Jackson were scrawnier, more nerdy in appearance, but Jack could nerd with the best of them. He's young. He'll make new friends, but it won't be the same, another voice argued back. See you in the morning, buddy. I love you. She paused at his doorway for a moment, her finger on the light switch. Rupert looked up and leaped down from the bed to follow her out. Aw, Jack's eyes were already closing. Hmm, I love you too. She closed the door softly and crossed the hall. The bathroom light was still on, and Maggie's book still lay where she had been stretching. She flipped the switch and picked up the book. Systems, she muttered under her breath. Maggie had her PJs on, a long nightshirt of lilac t-shirt material. She lay on top of her pink duvet, knees bent, feet in the air, her hair twisted up into a towel turban. Her head was bent over a pink clipboard in front of her, and she held a pom-pom top pencil in her hand. Maggie's room was artistic, pretty, just so, so Maggie. Sarah had first helped her pin up her own drawings on her side of the tiny room she shared with Jack in London, when she was four, as a way to make it feel like her own space. At first, there were just a few childish drawings of ballerinas with big heads and stick arms and legs, big pink triangle tutus. Over the next four years, the drawings added to the collection, got better and better, more lifelike, more in scale. They now covered the entire bottom half of her bedroom, some with ribbons dangling from them. When the window was open like tonight, or the doors pushed open, the ribbons fluttered delicately. They swayed as Sarah reached down to pick up Maggie's damp bathrobe off the floor and returned it to its hook. She put the book back on the bookshelf. What are you drawing now, Miss Maggie? She peered over her shoulder. Maggie tilted her head to the side to allow a clear view of a full-skirted ballerina, of course, reaching her arms up in a field of stars. She grinned. That looks about right. Maggie smiled back at her, then drew a circle around her dancer's head. That's your helmet. Her toes, always pointed, drew little circles in the air as well. Sarah lowered herself down to lie on the bed, shoulder to shoulder with her daughter. She waited. Maggie added a few more stars. I'll color it in the morning, she said, and wrapped ribbons up the dancer's long, slim legs. I'm going to bring all my drawings with me, and my ballet shoes, and all of my leotards and barbies. She paused. Sophia said that when I leave, she'll be the best dancer in the class, and I said that, ha-ha, then that means that I'm the best dancer now. She looked squarely at Sarah now, as if daring her to disagree. Because I am. Sarah rolled her eyes. I know, Megs, but you know that it's because you work so hard at it, and try so hard, and love it. So, hey, you've had a full day to think about the move, so what do you think? Maggie shrugged and her eyes dropped. Then she grinned. I'm going to dance in the stars. Sarah's eyes misted up again as she hugged the skinny little body close and kissed her cool cheek. That you are, Miss Maggie. She took the clipboard and pencil from her and put it on the bookshelf, then helped her unwrap her hair. It fell to just below her shoulders. Do you want it dried tonight? No thanks, Mum. Just bed. She crawled under the covers and found her hair around her, on her pillow. It would be dry, shiny, and smooth when she woke up. It's not fair. Sarah gave her a kiss on the forehead. Sweet dreams, sweet girl. She went to the door and flicked out the light. Slowly, on the ceiling, stick-on constellations began to emerge from the darkness. In the lamplight from Maggie's open window, she could see her daughter's eyes gleaming in the dark. As a fan of science fiction, I've dreamt sometimes about traveling to the moon or Mars, but it's always under a controlled fantasy. I never think about what it would be like to actually have to travel through space the psychological as well as the physical obstacles that you would have to overcome. 
It would be a very interesting journey from start to finish. That was a wonderful read. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I noted in Sarah's tone of voice that the, the, the whole trip process, the move, everything, was a bit more traumatic for her than it seemed to be for the kids. Yes. Um, and again, that was a reflection of my own my own life moving to to England. I find that with kids, a new adventure, a new experience is always it's always improving. It's always something that can can help them grow and develop. And it's really important to put kids into strange and unusual situations, I think, to to let them grow and develop in the best possible way, to have more awareness of what else is out there, to help them help their minds wrap around different situations, different cultures. And as well for her husband, he was following his dream to work on the space station. So for him, it was such an important thing for his career, where Sarah really had nothing going for her. She had finally found a career that she enjoyed. And of course, she'd give it up to follow because the other option was that either he'd go without her and he'd be gone forever, or, well, that was it. That was the only option was to go with him or to, to lose him forever. So it's kind of a challenging point of view, especially in today's day and age, but that still happens and it's it's upsetting and it's a uh, it should be a, a bygone time that women don't do this, don't pick up and follow their spouses at their own, not their own risk, but uh, losing their own identity. But it does still happen. My mom was a Navy wife, so we picked up every two to three years and, and moved to a new community. And so with me, with my, with my husband, it was kind of part of the deal that I was like, you know, like wherever you go, sure, I'll follow. And you you gain things for sure, but you, you do give up a little bit as well. And so that's not, again, it's not a very feminist perspective, but it does still happen. Packing up your whole life and shipping it all off to Mars. I'm assuming that just for the accommodations and the room on the shuttle, there would be a limit of what exactly they could bring. Yeah, so I took some uh, liberties, obviously, um, in not knowing what that could be. Uh, but I gave them a, I thought it was a reasonable limit of 20 kilograms each of personal belongings. The, the space shuttle itself would be set up. The new base, of course, would be set up. So they wouldn't need that much. But the um, it's the little things, the personal items that are hard to leave behind, leave behind. Having all your photographs on a USB stick is great, but it doesn't take the place of like a, a kid's drawing or something that belonged to your grandmother. So I wanted them to have the chance to take something personal along. As far as like winter coats and winter boots, that wouldn't be necessary because they wouldn't be going outside in the shuttle, certainly. And then on Mars as well, you wouldn't be going outside to play. So there's, I thought that'd be a, a reasonable amount. Um, yeah. And what about the cat? I thought that was interesting. <laughs> they would be allowed to bring a pet. Of all things, a cat. I would have thought a bird or fish, but nothing that there's anything wrong with cats i've had cats. <laughs> yeah so the the animals um the animals were a problem they were a problem on the ship but again moving to another country or sorry not a country another planet and the colonization uh the research to make sure that it's livable and a survivable place something that can be developed into a place for humans to live the agriculture side of it is important so on the ship there were animal labs i don't think i had any sheep or, or cows on there but they were definitely animals used for testing um animal use animals used for experiments um and so the cat the cat was supposed to go along as well and then later on there are dogs on the shuttle which again mm. caused problems <laughs> yeah. 
I would think cows and sheep and that methane would cause problems too, or could be an, an alternate fuel source just in case. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, there, there were some, um, some thoughts put towards how that could work out. Um, and there were plans, but on the ship, unfortunately, things don't go as planned and the addition of animals and their, um, their output, shall we say, does, um, it does trigger a series of events that are not very good. Cat poop. You're talking about cat poop, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I, was, I was trying to be euphemistic. <laughs> <laughs> but that brings up an interesting question. What about the cat poop? Because I know on Earth, they say you're not supposed to flush cat poop down the toilet. It's got to be put in the garbage. So I'm assuming they can't process cat poop the same way as they would or with human excrement. Well, the, the difference between, um, and again, in this world, um, the world that I created-ish. The difference between Earth and the space shuttle at this point is that Earth is a an established biome. So there's different kinds of bacteria. Everything is is alive and there's enough biodiversity that cat poop can be assimilated and 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 pulled in. Um, urine, if you spill a Coke in the park, um, there's billions of microorganisms organisms that will take care of it. On the shuttle, they don't have that. It's such a controlled situation that they didn't necessarily factor for everything. Their efforts to to react uh, when they realize that there is a problem cause more problems. Um, and again, it's a, it's a closed circuit. Um, and you'll it's it's like keeping fish in a fish tank versus fish in a pond. We we have goldfish in our pond outside. I don't know. I don't know how they're doing this winter, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see. The, we'll see in May. Goldfish. When we got goldfish years ago, I went in. I said, "Well, how long do goldfish live?" And the man said. The river carp. And I said, what does that mean? He said, it means if your goldfish dies, it's because you killed it. And I immediately <laughs> said, oh no, I have killed so many goldfish. <laughs> um, because they're meant to live in a river. They're meant to deal with whatever is in the river, like whatever is in the water supply. They deal with predators. They deal with pH changes that just happen naturally. Uh, within a tank, though, it's a, like it's, it's a small experiment each time. And they don't have the same biome, the bacteria, the, the, the biological strength to survive what they would survive in the wild. So that's kind of what happens on a bigger scale on the uh, spaceship. I did not know that about goldfish. It was a shock, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> and then the guilt, the guilt just kicks in. <laughs> they can survive anything outside, but they can't, they can't survive humans in a fishbowl. Yep. That, yep. That's interesting. I like that. Well, like koi they're like 50 to 75 years old and i'm like six months is six months good <laughs> while you were writing this novel did you ever relive any of your memories from when you traveled abroad and when you were planning or preparing and did you put any of those into your story yeah so again i was a i was a navy brat so we moved around a lot so as a kid it it was always an adventure so moving from place to place it was exciting and i was trying to capture that with with the kids and how my mom would bring it up to us saying, Hey, have you ever thought about, let's go, let's go to this place. And we'd be like, Hey, that sounds cool. Um, so we tried to do the same with, with their kids when we found out we were moving to London is we kind of like ease them into the idea of the, the opportunity for new vistas, for travel, for using it, using it as a base to be able to see so much that we wouldn't be able to see from Canada because Canada is so big. And by the time you get out of it, you spend a lot of money and you're very tired. So, um, so I, I tried to look at it that way. Again, I had a hard time leaving, but we moved over there and I felt displaced. I felt 
kind of cheated and angry. And so it started out kind of as an, I guess, an exercise to write down my feelings, but also knowing that it was very silly and I was like very much wallowing in self-pity when I, when I was having this amazing opportunity, this adventure to live in this incredible city that I would normally never get a chance to do. So I kind of went into it kind of tongue in cheek at first and then it, it, it developed as I went, but, but the experience of, of packing up and getting rid of stuff that you, you can't bring with you or that you won't need. It's, it was definitely cathartic. If children are very resilient to change, they can adapt so quickly that I could see them, Sarah's children, just picking up and like, okay, this is great. Let's go. And you can tell that in the reading that they're very accepting, very open about this new adventure. Yeah. And I think, well, we saw that in our kids as well. And I think it's partly how you prepare them and the framing of it. But like, what kid wouldn't want to go on a spaceship? What kid wouldn't want to go to Mars? Like, like that's that's awesome. As a grown up, knowing that you're going to Mars and, and living inside for the rest of your life, it would be less exciting, um, unless you had a really good reason for going there. But uh, as a kid, yeah, like, I would have gone in a second. To create a colony on Mars, that's where your mind can just explore and wander and just create these incredible scenes or technology. What was the most fun about creating this story? I'm going to say the research, what no. I ended up doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nerd. Yeah. So, um, so each time I came up with a new idea, I was like, okay, this could work this way. This could work this way. And then I would have to go back and say, is it plausible? Obviously it doesn't exist now, but could it exist? I recently reread a bunch of Ray, ba Ray Bradbury stories. Um, a lot of them are set on Mars and he had the most incredible gift of being able to write stories about Mars in the 1950s and 1960s when we knew so little. The more we learn about it, the harder it is to write fiction because you get people that are like, that wouldn't work. <laughs> They're like, technically. And I had quite, I had comments, I've had reviews that talk about the, like, the issues of why, why it couldn't work. I'm like, well, of course it couldn't work. It's science fiction. Not science I mean, fact. Exactly. Yeah. But each time I was just like, okay, so it has to be a one-way trip. And that's when I did a deep dive into like traveling to Mars. How long does it take? And at this point, the, the estimate is about nine months or less. I'm like, that's fantastic. I can work at that. The one-way trip, the, the issue is that we can, and so NASA as well, they can send their probes, they can send their little um, discovery vehicles to the surface of Mars. They can send them there and they can land, but they can't take off again from that surface. They can't carry enough fuel to be able to get back up off of Mars for the home, the homeward journey. So a lot of things in it, I was like, okay, I can really, I can really use that. When I got them into pickles, when they got themselves into scrapes, I was left trying to untangle it and try to find ways out. And that for me was really fun and really exciting. Um, I had a running group and I would be jogging along saying, okay, so they're on this, on the spaceship and there's a problem with this and I can't figure out how to get them out of it. And these poor women would jog beside me for like eight miles and listen to me talk myself through all the different biological options that I found on the internet. And like they, again, they're, they're saints, they're angels. I found that part the most fun. My husband at one point, he's like, well, just change, change the challenge, like change the disease that, that runs through the ship into something that can be cured. I'm like, but I can't. I said, the whole problem is that it's an incurable issue and I have to fix it. And he's like, but again, if you go back, 
go back 20 pages and make it something easier to beat. I'm like, well, I can't do that because that's not that's not fun. That's not as as interesting. So I really enjoyed the challenge of creating something and then realizing that I created something that was too complicated and still <laughs> having to beat it. So that was really that was actually really cool. And whenever I'd find like a little a little tip that would get me closer to the cure, I was like, oh my gosh, like, is this plausible? Could this work? I spoke to a, an expert in soil diseases that works, like he's a, con, a um, consultant that works with farmers and he specializes in a specific kind of soil issue. And I called him up and we had this fantastic discussion that I'm going to say on the planet, six other people would have been like, that's an interesting discussion. And the rest of them would have been just like, like that's <laughs> the most boring thing I ever heard of. But it was so interesting because I had this this man who's whose life's work was dealing with this kind of thing. And I said, but could this work? And he's like, no, that couldn't yeah. work. And he's like, but have you thought about nanotechnology? I'm like, that is too complicated. I don't have time to learn about nanotechnology <laughs> at this point in my life. So it was, yeah, it was really fascinating. I really enjoyed that part. So yes, my answer is research because it was, it was really like, it took me like breadcrumb to the next breadcrumb and it really opened up avenues and conversations and yeah, it was fun. It can also open up a lot of rabbit holes oh yes oh yes <laughs> i'm on a kick lately of rabbit holes i have to know what everyone's what deep dive everyone's been doing so <laughs> what was an interesting one for you other than the soil and the cat poop um life on mars so what are the issues what's the difference between mars and earth as far as the the atmosphere the temperature the gravity and what what has to be done to make it livable so that we can live on the surface the way we do on earth and the short answer is it's going to take a long time so even if we ever do get to live on mars and again for too many weeks there's documentaries that they're all speculative of course there's astronauts that have written books there's like elon musk which i I hate to bring up that name but there's there's all sorts of things that people have been have been writing and researching NASA has written a lot on it and I dug deep and at the end of it I was like like pull back pull back um, <laughs> I have friends and family that are pestering at me to write a sequel and I'm just like I don't I don't think I want to go there because that's going to involve terraforming and nobody wants to wait a thousand years <laughs> to meet the plant for me to make the planet livable <laughs> so yeah it's um, that was that was the biggest one was like i kind of left that as a that's 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 somebody else's problem like okay i can get them onto the shuttle i can get them having adventures on the way but the living on mars is is something so so complex again really fascinating one day when it happens if it happens it's going to be fabulous but it's it's a long way coming and it's going to take a lot of really really smart hardworking people to create a magnetic sail to populate the ground with lichen and all these different mi microorganisms that can start putting off enough carbon dioxide to start creating an atmosphere like it's it's it is not the work of an afternoon a lot of writers that i've spoke to and i've seen online they've come into becoming a writer because of the pandemic and all the lockdowns they and they call or refer to their books as covid books would you consider this novel a COVID book? It was drafted before that. So it was drafted in the fall of 2019. It was a NaNoWriMo project, uh, my first attempt. And so it was kind of a COVID book in that while I was locked in with my kids homeschooling around the dining room table, I had 
like seven dedicated hours a day that I was sitting and I could do rewrites and edits. And because of that as well, I had not, not extra time, but extra focus to, to get it done. Because again, I was sitting with them anyway, with screens in front of us. So, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that I undertook during the pandemic as a project. It was something that I had already finished, well, already drafted and then proceeded with. Has your story changed from the original draft? It's, it's developed. I had the, um, the pleasure of a really good developmental editor who challenged a lot of points, who gave it more structure. When it was originally picked up by a publisher, it was set to be a, um, an episodic release. So I had to take the, the chapters and the, the storyline and compress it into, I think it was nine bite-sized chunks of, of the same the same length. So that was a, that was a challenge because you have your story and you love it. And then they're like, okay, well, this chapter needs to be twice the length and this one needs to, and you're just like, oh, so I had to do a whole rejig and rewrite. And then what it turned out is that that part of the business folded and they said, you know, let's publish it as an actual book. And I was really excited about that. Luckily I got to be quite hands-on with that process. And the night that it was like, I had my final proof in my hand. They said, okay, like this, this is it. This is, we're going to hit print. What do you think? And I sat bolt upright in bed and I was just like, stop the presses. I have to change the ending. And they had the whole way along, I had had my character as a sidekick. And then and I was like, well, cause it's life. Like people don't necessarily change in, in, in life. People, people do change, but I, I have an issue with a storyline you see in a movie sometimes that the character is, she's, she's a quiet little mouse. And one day she stands up and gives a whole speech in front of her high school and changes everything about her and is the hero. And I didn't, I didn't want that for my main character. I wanted her to contribute. I wanted her to feel good and see that she had worth outside of her, her kind of tag along persona. I wanted to show as well that she, she's a flawed narrator, which maybe didn't come across as well as I had hoped. But the night before I was just like, I can't believe I missed. And it was one, one key piece right at the end that I was just like, oh my gosh, I know how the book should end. And this was six months after it was accepted, six months after we'd gone through all the edits. And um, my publisher was kind enough to be like, all right, what is it? And I told him, she's <laughs> like, well, of course it should end that way. I'm like, but of course it should end that way. So it, yes, so it has changed. I'm not going to say materially, but it definitely has changed a lot for the better. The outcome, the outcome would have been the same, except that the character arc was a little more believable and smooth, I think. Nice. So that's a, a hard maybe on a sequel. <laughs> a hard maybe. A hard Again, maybe. it's half drafted, but there's a there's a lot of a lot of science to iron out that I don't know if I have the patience to uh, to go through and to, to figure it out. It's um yeah, there's there's a lot out there on Mars already, and it's not what I have doesn't line up with necessarily what's out there. So I can see that people that are very into science fiction would not enjoy it because it's, it's not what Mars would be like. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for joining me tonight on the podcast. It was wonderful talking to you. You're welcome. You too. I hope we can do this again, maybe for that, that sequel or maybe for uh, another book. There is another one actually in, in the process of rewrites right now. I'm going through chapter by chapter and just being like, Oh my gosh, there's no plot, nothing happens, but I'm trying to fix that. So, <laughs> so maybe, maybe by next year, there'll be another one out. So. Well, good luck with that. Thank you very much. It was really nice to talk to you. Yes. And you have a great night and we'll talk to you later. That sounds good. Thanks. You too. 
Karen has put a lot of research into her story, but that's what needs to be done if you want to make the story not just believable, but plausible as well. Especially when it comes to this particular genre. What was once science fiction is now fact. And I think Karen did a great job bringing the elements together to make an enjoyable story. That's all I have for tonight, listeners. And again, thank you for joining me tonight. And make sure to check out our website at www.strongwomenstrangeworlds.weebly.com for more strong women and other underrepresented gender identity authors of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Good night.